Good morning. The scripture reading for today is from Acts 5, 17-42. It can be found on page 6 of your bulletin. Then when the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself you only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. 
We're continuing in our study of the book of Acts, these early days of the Christian church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We're just moving story by story, effectively, and we're coming here upon this middle section of Acts chapter 5. Let's stop and pause and pray uh, before we continue. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us your spirit. We know what we most need right now is not just intellectual power or even willpower, changing ourselves. What we need is spiritual power. We need your Holy Spirit. So please come now and fill these words and impact our lives and change our hearts and show us ourselves. Most of all, show us you. Help us to see Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was moved this past week when reading a little bit about Katrine and Evan. These are two Christians who lived in a small town in the Nineveh Plain in Iraq. The town, of course, in that region lay at the heart of the historic presence of Christianity in Iraq. In that area, there's been increasing social pressure in amongst and against Christians. You're required, apparently, to hold ID cards, every citizen of that region. ID cards that publicly designate you by a religion, Muslim, Christian, Mandean, Yazidi. Many non-Christians won't hire Christians at their businesses. After all, they are religious minorities there. According to reports, families closely monitor their daughters out of fears that they might be targeted for sexual violence. It's not just fears, of course, it's based upon the record. And there's ongoing threats of violence always at the hands of ISIS, the Islamic State. So apparently, on an ordinary basis, there's the difficult decision that's always on the table for Iraqi Christians. Do we stay or do we flee? Apparently, Katrine and Evan, after a long time of weighing their different options and their different needs, especially considering the safety and the future of their two young children, they finally decided to leave, leaving behind family, history, sense of place, even identity in many respects. Leaving their families behind, they came over here to the U.S., found an opening to become refugees, in fact, here in the States, settling down in Detroit, where they now live and work. Evan in the field of construction and Katrine at the Salvation Army. And this, of course, is just one story. There are many, 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 all too tragic many stories just like this one. And, of course, not just in Iraq and not just in the Mediterranean region, but all around the world. And the story that I was repeating, uh, that I was reading, that I'm now repeating to you uh, in the Atlantic, it reports that over the last two decades, there's been an 80% decrease in Christians in Iraq, either because they've been forced out or they've been killed or they've been forced to flee. And as the report stated, poignantly, stunningly, the world may soon witness the permanent displacement of an ancient religion, Christianity, and an ancient people, Iraqi Christians, in the nation of Iraq. We must pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who daily face the threat of persecution in Iraq and around the world. 
But we must also keep in mind that persecution isn't simply a modern phenomenon. In fact, it's when we look back into the very pages of Scripture that we see what we might call a theological lens or understanding of what in fact is going on even today as Christians are threatened, harmed, and even killed because of their faith in Christ. This is the focus of today's passage in the book of Acts chapter 5. The reality and the horror and the glory of those who are enduring persecution. We actually find just a few verses before our passage today in verse 12 of chapter 5, the reasons for which the persecution started and grew in those early days of the Christians. In verse 12, we're told that the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. People were being healed. Uh, People were being set free from spiritual oppression. People's lives were being changed. In verse 14, we hear that more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The movement of Christianity was catching fire. As the word about the gospel of grace, God coming to love a people that don't deserve it, but him loving them anyway. Growing and moving in people's lives all throughout this region. We're told in verse 16 that crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem to be healed and to hear the word about Jesus. And so, as we come upon our passage, we're told in verse 17 that the religious leaders were filled with jealousy. Jealousy, because of the growing popularity of the Christian leaders and of the Christian movement, as well as because of what that represented to them as a threat to their sense of power, their identity, their hold on the religious establishment in that time. And so, of course, they gathered together these young Christians and... They arrested them, and they jailed them, we see in verse 18. We're told about a miraculous rescue of these disciples in verses 19 and 20, but then also how they're brought back in front of the authorities for some more interrogation by the council called the Sanhedrin. That's in verses 21 through 39. Finally, the whole ordeal climaxes not only with verbal threats, don't you dare preach the name of Jesus again, but we're told that they were flogged, and they were released in the end with more threats, not again. They were released, and yet we learn as we continue to read throughout the book of Acts that the persecution doesn't subside, it actually only worsens and grows. In the past two chapters, we were told about the persecution of Peter and John who were imprisoned and threatened. Here in chapter 5, we have a case where the disciples were imprisoned and threatened and then also flogged. In the next chapter, chapters 6 and 7, we hear about Stephen, who eventually will be stoned, killed, the very first martyr of the Christian faith. After that, we're told in chapter 12 of the book of Acts about a continuation of arrests that were made because of those who were preaching, proclaiming, and believing in the name of Christ. We're told about the execution of James, the brother of John. More stories about Peter who was jailed, then miraculously rescued. 
stories in chapter 14 of the book of Acts. By this time, we've gotten to know a man named Saul whose name was changed to Paul. We hear about him in a little bit, but here when he's a missionary into the Gentile regions, we're told that he not only faces opposition, but he's even stoned in a city called Lystra, again in chapter 14. He's dragged outside the city. He's left for dead. He doesn't die. He continues his ministry. In chapter 16, we hear about Paul and now Silas, who's arrested in Philippi. And of course, the whole book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul being arrested, transported to Rome, and eventually sentenced to death. You see, the story of the early Christians is the story of violent opposition against the Christian message and against Christians themselves. And this is a theme that will come upon again and again, and I simply want to touch on it briefly here today, and we will be brief, but I want to show you from this passage three characteristics that we learn, three characteristics of the early Christians' experience of persecution. Three themes, three characteristics. First, perseverance. Second, obedience. And third, joy. Perseverance, obedience, and joy. Let's take a look first at perseverance. One of the things about persecution when we talk about it, when we study it in Scripture, when we observe it happening around the world, it's important not to romanticize the experience of opposition to Christianity. Their pain was very real. In fact, these disciples that we read about here in this passage, what they endured was really nothing short of horrendous physical suffering, not to mention the emotional and psychological abuse that they also suffered as well. As I mentioned before in verse 40, we're told that before they were released, they were flogged. This is the same word, the same practice that was described in earlier parts of Luke's gospel and the other gospels, telling us that this is what Jesus also suffered. The normal Roman practice of flogging usually 40 lashes minus one, a practice of essentially shredding the backs and bodies of its victims, a practice so harsh and violent and graphic, in fact, that oftentimes the flogging itself led its victims dead. This is what they endured that day in verse 40. This is what's real about persecution. We need to not romanticize it, even as we hear about the stories of those like Katrine and Evan, who've left everything. Surely they're standing for Christ and they're enduring in Christ. But even as you read that story in the Atlantic, you can tell they are doubled over in suffering, emotional suffering, the loss and the cost. But this is what's very important to notice in this passage and other passages like it in the New Testament. The suffering is real, not romanticized. The pain is very real, but the emphasis is on their perseverance. Their perseverance in faith and in witness. That's not to glamorize it. That's not to give an artificial sheen to what it took for them to keep on believing, even in the face of suffering. To keep on proclaiming the grace of Christ, even in the face of great loss. But we do need to note that the accent of this passage is on the wonder 
of the grace that the Holy Spirit gave these disciples to keep on keeping on in their witness and in their faithfulness. We're told in verse 19 that after that first round of being imprisoned during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And what did that angel tell them? Go, go back. Stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. And you know what? Verse 21, at daybreak, these disciples, already now imprisoned and threatened, what did they do? They entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people again. We see this again in verse 42 at the very end of the passage. Day after day, the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, the main point that the author Luke wants us to come away with is not just the disciples' pain, but the disciples' perseverance. And we read about this again and again and again throughout the book of Acts. Again, the Apostle Paul in chapter 14 comes upon a city called Iconium, and there they discover that there's a plot to stone them, to kill them. And so they leave the city, and they go to another one called Lystra. And there they actually did get stoned, and we're told it was so bad that the Apostle Paul was believed to have been dead, lying there on the ground. When eventually he gathered his strength up, what did he do? He went right back into the same city that he almost got killed in to continue his ministry. He leaves eventually and then does one more return back to Iconium, that original city that he first left, because word was out that they were going to be stoned. Perseverance, even in the face of suffering. But even more than the disciples' perseverance, The overarching accent and emphasis of this passage is not on their perseverance, but on God's. God who remains faithful to his people. Not just in protecting them, but in giving them strength that they need. This is what we gain from seeing this short scene of rescue. This miraculous scene where this angel comes and enables them to escape from jail in verses 19 and 20. And of course, the point is not that God every time saved them miraculously with an angel, but rather to make sure that they and us knew that God could every time. The reminder is that God is sovereign over even these harsh circumstances. In fact, we find in the words of Gamaliel, a Pharisee who's a part of this council, he's addressing the Sanhedrin in verse 38, and ironically, he speaks loads of truth as he's counseling this group to go ahead and release the disciples. He says in verse 38, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And he was right. And the point there, of course, is if God is for you, who can be against you? God's purposes will prevail. 
even and including the suffering that the disciples might face, even through their perseverance, God will prevail. The story here, of course, in the persecution of his people is always, back then and even today now, is the story of God's relentlessness in his love to rescue people for himself. God is always pursuing his people. God is always pursuing people through a suffering people, a persevering people, a pained people. God's perseverance works through ours and even through our pain. Remember the very first words that we find in this book, this grand book of the story of the early church is Jesus commissioning his disciples, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses, dear friends. That's not only a commission, that's also a promise. God is not breaking his promise. He will extend the story of his grace to the ends of the earth. Number one, perseverance. Number two, obedience. You might have caught that striking phrase from the words of the disciples in verse 28 and in 29. The religious authorities remind them, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, this name of Jesus. And we're told in verse 29, Peter and the other apostles reply, what? We must obey God rather than human beings. Of course, that's a reference to the words of the angel who rescued them and said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about new life. We're told in verse 21 that they actually did this. Verse 21, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told. They were obeying God as he commanded them through the angel. We know they're certainly following the commission of Christ. You will be my witnesses. Here are a persecuted people that feel accountable to God. They know that their highest authority is God himself and that they're accountable for obeying his word. This, of course, leads to this tradition that we've seen all throughout the scriptures and even beyond it into our modern time of what is often called civil disobedience. This idea that even laws that are created by human beings can at times are unjust and immoral. And therefore, we are always accountable to obey God rather than the creations of human beings, even those things that are legislated. As the author John Stott, theologian, comments on this passage, he says this, to be sure, Christians are called to be conscientious citizens and generally speaking, to submit to human authorities, yes. But if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or forbids what he commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God. We don't take these things lightly, of course. But it does raise the question... Are there rules, commands, opinions, traditions, and certainly laws that are of human creation that cause one to disobey the command of Christ? 
Here we have the very words of God instructing us, we must obey God rather than men. Of course, we're not just talking about things that are an inconvenience or a mere difference of opinion or different exercises of prudential judgment. In other words, it's perhaps not the right time to invoke this passage just because you're tired of moving your car at 7.30 in the morning on Tuesday for street sweeping. Stand your ground, street sweepers, right? Or if you happen to believe that the current effective marginal tax rate is 0.2% off of what it ought to be, not talking about matters of opinion or inconvenience, we're talking about unjust and immoral laws that coerce you to violate the law of God. And certainly this extends beyond laws formally speaking, other practices in society, norms, cultural expectations, traditions of man, the Bible might call them, or even traditions within the church that might cause you to, in fact, disobey the very word of God. Our consciences, our hearts need to be bound first and foremost and ultimately by the word of God and God himself. It's worth considering, friends, who is your highest authority? Not, 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 not just the thing that you write down on paper, God. I mean practically and functionally. Whose words do you obey? Who do you feel most accountable to in this life? The apostles here, as they spoke, were very clear who they are accountable to. It was God. We must obey him rather than human beings. Would you be able to state that with as firm a conviction? We must obey God rather than human beings, even to the point of suffering for that very conviction. Obedience, perseverance, and thirdly, joy. We'll close with this, joy. What was the disciples' response to persecution? We started to see the answer to that important question Two weeks ago, as we were looking at chapters 4 and chapter 5, what was their response to persecution? Well, they prayed. They prayed, and not just for protection and not prayers to get out of there. They prayed for boldness to persevere. They prayed for one another. They mourned the loss of those who suffered under this persecution. They exhorted each other. They encouraged each other to remain faithful to God's word. They loved one another. They loved their enemies. They even preached to them, extending the compassion of Christ to their captors themselves. They advocated for their own rights. They did. They didn't just roll over. They said, this is what fair treatment ought to look like, even of us. As we just said, they persevered in their witness. They didn't shrink back, but they kept on proclaiming Christ, both in their words as well as in their compassionate deeds. You know, you don't see a, a, a smidgen of resentment coming out of them for their suffering. You don't see any evidence of retaliation. This is only by the grace of God. They only show love, forgiveness, prayer, and faithfulness. And at the end of the passage, we see one more thing, which is just about the most mind-boggling thing, and it's this. How did the early Christians respond to persecution? With joy. 
They rejoiced in their suffering, we're told in verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, what? Rejoicing. Why? Why did they rejoice? Not because they loved pain. This isn't weird Christian masochism, right? But why did they rejoice? It wasn't because they denied the reality of pain. This isn't Christian Buddhism. Why did they rejoice? Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the name of Jesus. They rejoiced because they counted, they were counted worthy of suffering disgrace for Jesus. It was an honor to be dishonored for Christ's sake. It was a grace to be disgraced for Christ's sake. They rejoiced just as Christ said they would rejoice. Matthew 5, Jesus says this, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Were the apostle Peter writing at a later date, possibly reflecting back upon this very moment recounted to us in the book of Acts chapter 5. He says in his letter to the churches in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 13 and 16, he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Now, what does that even mean? I mean, this, it sounds like a riddle that somehow they're rejoicing because they were found counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name of Christ. And I have been pondering this throughout this week, and I think it sounds something like this. What were they saying to themselves that they would rejoice in this way? I think it's something like this, that we are suffering not really because people are rejecting us, but because they're rejecting the sufferings of Christ for us. That we're suffering not because people are rejecting us personally, but rather because of what we represent, which is the sufferings of Jesus. People are rejecting the beauty and the matchless worth of Christ's sufferings. It's not about me. It's about the one in whose sufferings I share and participate. In other words, they see themselves as being so conjoined to the reality of Christ's sufferings. Not that they themselves are actually atoning for our sins, purchasing our forgiveness as Christ himself did, but rather that they are the embodied messengers of that story of redemptive suffering. There's an intimacy that they experience there's a bondedness. There's a sense in which they know that their sufferings are uniquely, spiritually, deeply, intimately connected to the sufferings of Christ. They see themselves as being honored by being treated as that close in kind and in identity to their Savior, Jesus. How could it be that we could be treated like him how could it be that they could see that we are, 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 are this close in identity and proximity that they would treat us just like they treated him? How could it be that, that we could actually be exalted so, yes, even unto 
death, exalted so that we could be seen side by side with Jesus, that they would treat us just like him. In other words, here's the big question for us. How worthy of Jesus, how worthy of honor, how worthy of honor must Jesus be to you? And how precious must his blood be to you that you would rejoice for being counted worthy of suffering dishonor for his name? Because here were disciples that understood, in fact, even preached, according to verse 20, that they weren't just telling people about a man named Jesus, they were telling them about a Savior who gave them, what, new life. Some of us today feel like you're living a life that's basically been worn out, a life that has no purpose, a life that has no life. Maybe you feel like a carcass, just going from thing to thing, conversation to conversation, workday to workday, city to city perhaps, and maybe you arrive to the city feeling like a zombie already. What you need is new life. Not only new purpose and direction to life, God can give that to you, but also the new energy, the life of the Spirit itself that gives you the power to live in the face of suffering and trials that we all face in one kind or another. They were filled by the hope of new life, resurrection life. They were also filled with the hope of forgiveness. As verse 31 says, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of their sin. Here was a people that were deeply in love with Jesus. In love with the Jesus who suffered for their forgiveness, for their life, for their salvation, for their union with him, such that when they were persecuted for him, they said, how could it be so that we could be counted worthy of this honor? Who is Jesus to you? Isn't this the ultimate question here today? Do you know his forgiveness? Not just in the abstract, but even here and today. Something specific that you know you need the forgiveness of Christ for. Do you know Jesus paid it all? As our brother Colossae said earlier, not just part of it. Not just 90% of it and you need to come up with the extra 10. A spiritual co-pay, as it were. Jesus paid it all. All your sins paid for on the cross. Does that give you love for Christ because he's loved you so? Don't you know Jesus has given you new life in him? He's given you purpose and meaning. He's loved you and he's given you an an indestructible life that literally is indestructible. You're going to live forever and forever in perfect union with Christ. Eternal joy, eternal life. Don't you know he's loved you so? And if you begin to taste that love of Christ, if you begin to love him in like manner, wouldn't it make sense that you could answer this question with joy in your heart and with power, power even to overcome suffering, to persevere in the face of the worst and to obey even against opposition of men? How worthy of honor must Jesus be to you? And how precious his blood that you would rejoice for being counted worthy of suffering dishonor for his name. Will you know the love of Christ in a new way today? Even that you might be ready to suffer 
for that name. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would give us grace, that you would show us the life of Christ through his suffering and even through our own. Jesus, come near to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.